Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year... They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 27, now in these days, the prophets or prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of God. Let him who has ears hear. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for a Sunday morning, time together, our open Bibles in our laps. Lord, speak to us. Reveal the truth of this passage in our understanding. And Lord, give us what is necessary to be obedient and faithful to what we'll learn. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, this passage is a bit different from what we've read in the past several weeks. Um, different than last week, and it's good to be back with you this week. And this passage will be different than what we'll see in chapter 12. What we just read ranks high in informative transitional elements. I know you got up this morning excited to go to church to hear transitional informative elements between adventurous, dramatic chapters prior and afterward. But Luke does this every so often to tie little pieces together, to tell us bits of information that'll help us make sense with other pieces of information later. So no, it doesn't rank high on drama. We've seen plenty of drama. We talked about blankets and visions coming down full of creepy animals. We've talked about uh, martyrdom. We've talked about imprisonment, arrests, trials. We'll get back to those types of things. But we need to understand that not one word of what we just read is insignificant. Not one word is any less inspired than the stuff that holds our attention better. So it may be that we'll have to go in manually and put the thinking cap on and try to maintain attention the same as if it were something that sounds more like something we'd watch on the television. There are some things here that are very good, very insightful, and very helpful, and I'll do my best to pull those out. But we must be faithful to every word as we study verse by verse, including 19 through 30 of Acts chapter 11. Uh, the first couple of words that should draw our attention 
or that we should discuss when we're looking at verse 19, if you go back, uh, those who were scattered because of the persecution. Scattered and persecution tie us back to some things. And then it's mentioned that this had to do with Stephen. That should be our clue to understand that what's going to take place from here on out um, is one of those situations where God often does his best work. And it's often in ways that we didn't plan or account for and certainly would never sign up for or ask for. Uh, Stephen was martyred. Persecution broke out afterward. The reason that people are going to these places that we're going to read about here in a moment is because if they stay where they are, they could likely meet Stephen's end or be persecuted or be imprisoned. Remember, Saul was the one ravaging the church, gathering all these people up. No one wants to have to leave their home because they're going to die if they don't. But this is the very way that God chooses to spread his church and his gospel into places they don't already know it. So first thing we learn right out of the gate, God often works in ways we would never choose. Uh, The next couple of words to look at, uh, traveled and speaking. So they're scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So they're traveling and they're speaking. Now, when you travel, these days, you want to take your earbuds so you don't have to say a word, right? I I kind of like the idea that it's almost almost custom now that, that you're entitled to your own privacy in public spaces. used to never be that way. And it used to be that in places like the South, everyone talked to anyone. Uh, I've taken my kids on trips certain times. We, we went to D.C. with a few of them. That was my first rule. Don't stare at anybody in the metro. Um, just It's easier if you don't. They're not going to stare at you. Don't stare at them. Even if they look weird, even if whatever's interesting, just look at your feet. And, and, and we'll be fine. What these people are doing, as they're traveling, they're not just making small talk. The word speaking here is speaking of this Jesus that has changed their life. They're witnessing as they go, and these are unnamed people. Traveling describes their migration away from the persecution. And then there are three specific locations mentioned that they are traveling to, and while they're traveling, they're speaking. And uh, we'll see here in a moment, there's a specific group to whom they're speaking. But let's look at the list of places. There's Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Uh, Phoenicia also goes by Phinis. That means palm country. How many of you would say, I'd be up for visiting palm country. That sounds nice. I like palm trees. Coconuts, dates. In fact, I've actually grown a few palm trees from seeds that are supposed to be cold hardy up to zone 7B and 8A, which is right where we're going to be living here down in uh, Kipling. I know you also came to church to hear about me planting palm trees (laughs) by seeds. 
But it's a thing about a real place. It used to be called Philistine territory. That's where Goliath would have come from. But that's one of the stops these people are making. Cyprus, if you're looking at a map, floats in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles off the coast of Syria. And then there's Antioch of Syria. That's about 20 miles inland off the Mediterranean coast. And Antioch, if you look at that word there, it's named after Antiochus, Epiphanes. Remember, he tore the temple all up. Well, there was Alexander the Great. There's a lot of history going, a son, and then the naming of this place. This was about the third largest Roman city in the Roman Empire uh, behind Alexandra and Rome. A lot of times we just read right over Alexandra with no historical significance. This is a huge place. This is the perfect place to start the spread of the gospel. It's about 7% Jewish at, at the time of this writing. So that's 7% of the people that already know of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The next step is to introduce them to Jesus from that lineage who was the Messiah who died in your place to forgive you of your sins against his father and to give you the hope of heaven. Paul is always going to start at synagogues because those people all have a starter kit from which to start the conversation with. Now, that's not all who they're speaking to. We get down further. But uh, the city was known for its sophistication, its culture, also for its vices. And they were despicable. Um, let me show you something here. We'll, we'll track it as we go along. There are at least three different ways in what we just read that will describe how Christians are involved in sharing the gospel. We just read that first one, and it's speaking. It's not necessarily preaching. They're fleeing Jerusalem, and they're speaking about Jesus and their new life. This is small talk. This is sitting on the bleachers at the game, standing in line at Walmart. You name it, but it's not happening inside a church during a service. That's the first way. And then one more thing about verse 19. It says that they spoke to no one except the Jews. And that's kind of as much a time stamp as anything else because at this point, they could not have known that the gospel had spread to the Gentiles since they're fleeing Jerusalem before that happened and fleeing for their lives. So a, a lot has happened during the same amount of time. But as far as these folks go, they're probably unaware and they know how to talk to Jewish folks and get that ball rolling easier than anyone else. So the bottom line for verse 19, which is kind of the introductory statement of that paragraph the saints are scattered they are being scattered and they are spirit filled so it shouldn't surprise us that the gospel message is going right along with them and being shared as they go verse 20 but there were some of them men of cyprus and cyrene cyrene is uh northern africa who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, there's different ways this could be interpreted because sometimes Hellenists were referred to as Greek-speaking Jewish people who speak Greek but are Jewish in their background. Remember, the Jews had been scattered for generations. 
Or it might have just meant Greek-speaking Greeks. But look at what it said they're doing here. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So some of the men that were unnamed from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, two other locations. Well, one mentions the first list and then we add one there. They get to Antioch and they start preaching. That's the word in the Greek, evangelizo. We get the word evangelism or evangelistic services. And uh, as far as that goes, they're adding to the list of the ways in which they preach and bear witness like this little one we praise the Lord for. Um, I'm thankful for babies in this church, aren't you? Some churches don't have babies. We got lots. Even more than that down the hall. So we thank the Lord for them. Um, do you see that though? Add to the list of ways to share the gospel, preaching to speaking. You can do that on the bleachers and the line of Walmart, but there's also evangelism, targeting the gospel message to people. That could take place on a street corner. Maybe you've seen it done. It could take place in evangelistic services. It could take place, say, uh, in gatherings like uh, Mars Hill with Paul. That's where all the people came to just think about stuff. So he's going to go evangelize. That's the second way. That happens by these unnamed men in Cyprus and Cyrene, but Antioch is the location. The important part of that verse, if you're looking at it, actually it's verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's a huge point. Might not sound dramatic, but its implications are dramatic. As a result, a great number of them believed and turned to Jesus. The truth is, that's what happens when God's hand is on a ministry. It grows. His word goes out and it accomplishes what it was gone out to accomplish. It doesn't return void, that is. Because of scripture like this and because of experience, we have a tendency, and it's probably part of our, our human nature, which has fallen as well, that whenever we see a church growing numerically, we want to be quick to say that the hand of the Lord is on it when that isn't necessarily true. Churches can grow in ways other than God's hand is on them. Why is that? Well, because humanity has all different types of ways we can attract people and gather people. Um... I heard one pastor say, don't ever worry about how many are in your service, numbers and all that. Walmart beats you every week and they're always gonna. There's a bigger crowd at Walmart in Fuquay this morning than any of the churches gathered. Why? Because they've got what they want or what they need. And if a church decides, hey, we'll just give people what they want or need, they can grow, grow a church, a mega church. Uh, and they will be glad to pay for it. That is human nature. Just because a church is exploding with growth doesn't mean it's God's growth. We need to make sure that we understand that because it can be a problem. Uh, 
the biggest worship gathering on record in the Old Testament where there was jubilant singing and dancing was around a golden calf while God's man was up on the mountain receiving Ten Commandments, which would be thrown to the ground as soon as he realized what had happened. And when they asked him what they were doing, Aaron says, we threw our gold into the fire and out popped this golden calf, which is about as good of a response as I think he should have given publicly. So were they there for the word of God or were they there for idolatry? They were there for idolatry. And don't think that you can make a good, big, fat megachurch into the shiniest, prettiest golden calf there ever was. Not all megachurches are that way. I would hope to think that most of them teach this book and it's God's authority and God's hands on their ministry and everyone can get excited about it. But over the course of my lifetime, I was born in the 70s. About that time, churches started to grow, innovative ways to do certain things in certain areas, usually in Florida or California. In the 80s, the 90s, boy, the big churches really came into their own. They would do things like multiple services so they didn't have to fight about music. You just go to the service where the music is the way you like it. Same speaker, but he's wearing himself out speaking over and over and over again. But then in the 2000s, technology evolved such that you could stream that one man's message at the same time to multiple locations. Anything in the Bible says that that's no good? No. It's fine and dandy. But in the 2010s, here recently... A lot of that has come back under scrutiny and found wanting, especially when the one fellow who's seen by thousands instead of hundreds or tens functions in a vacuum of accountability. And then we're all shocked when the heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked that none of us can know uh, ruins an entire ministry. Why in the world we act like that should never happen, I don't know, because it should happen all the time. Even pastors, especially pastors, are targets of the devil with all they need inside to blow themselves up and the whole church, right? And I've watched it from guys I listened to and learned things from and then felt guilty for putting them on a pedestal we never should anyway. There's one pedestal, and we just read about how it works. When God puts his hand on a ministry, it grows. Men can build their own babbles all they want to, and sometimes it happens. And we've got to have the spiritual maturity and insight to know the difference between the two. I'm glad the Lord gave the church a wide berth to do church in lots of different ways. But there's only a handful of basics. And sticking to the word is of utmost. If the word has its witness, God has promised to give them his hand. So, verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Why? To check it out. To make sure everything's kosher. We use that word 
uh, before. Just as they were concerned with the conversion of the Samaritans and just as they were concerned with the conversion of Cornelius and the others in Caesarea, now they're concerned with what sounds like a mixed congregation in Syria. Not to say that everything's wrong, but to just make sure that everything's right. And as the church expands in growth, we'll see less and less control by Jerusalem and more and more control by churches themselves with the word of God and with elders and deacons, just as churches like this don't have a Jerusalem to tell them what and how to do. But at the beginning, they're going to check it out. We met Barnabas in chapter 4. He was likely chosen not only because he himself was from Cyprus. So if you've got these places, Cyprus is on the list, well, we'll send a Cypriot to see uh, how that works. That's likely. Uh, But also he gained a reputation for piety and for generosity among the believers in Jerusalem. Remember, this was the guy who vouched for Saul when he was ravaging the church, but after the road to Damascus. So he has somewhat of a track record. And uh, we look in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Here again, and a great many people were added to the Lord. There's one thing I love about those two verses. I came across some of this in some commentaries, and I thought, that's a borderline argument from silence, because it's hard to make arguments from what you don't see in a passage, right? But the way it's worded, it's as if Luke means to say that there's, there's nothing wrong here. There's no negative in verse 23 and 4. When he saw the grace of God, so he's identified that the work here is of God's grace. Then he was glad. I like to be glad at church. I hope everybody's glad at church. And then he encouraged them or exhorted them all to remain faithful. So if they're faithful, it's been done right. There's, there's nothing to pick here. Nothing to say is wrong or do this different. Now, those might get out of the realm of faithfulness into the realm of opinion where it's every man for himself. Sometimes you feel like. But the Lord, uh, they're, they're faithful to the Lord, and his in, encouragement is that they would do so with steadfast purpose. Goes on to talk about him. He's good, full of the Holy Spirit faith, so he should have his eyes open to see what he's seeing. And basically, he says, keep doing what you're doing. This is a great report. Encourages them, as any pastor would, of new converts to remain faithful. Don't fall away. Let's keep going. The reason why I like that verse is because it's not just Wake Chapel. It's not just the Tabernacle. It's not just Pleasant Grove where I was in Virginia. It's not just... Uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church when I was a student at Liberty. I hate to break it to you folks, but running a church week to week is not all smiles and giggles, pats on the back, encouraging warm fuzzies. I know Caleb says that. Positive and encouraging. But the church is made up full of people People have problems, even Christians, lots of them. 
There are times where you feel like you just can't do anything right. There are times where you feel like you can't gain a consensus. There's times where it feels like everything that's wrong comes from within the church. There's times where it feels like it's all coming from outside the church. You can be doing church and minding your own um, glorious business and a pandemic ruins everything temporarily. And you have to figure out what to do while you're doing it. And human nature dictates that if there's something to be done and there are 10 ideas, and let's say one of them's a good one, there's at least 100 people who'll tell you 50 different ways why that good idea won't work, right? That's just the way sometimes it, it, it feels. And if you guys didn't work you know, regular jobs in, in this world and economy, you know, I might have to explain it further, but you know that, that that's the way it, it, it works. Board meetings. Oh, what's the big poster? Um, I laugh at it. I'd, I'd never use it in the context of a church, but I mean, we all live on the same planet, right? It says, all of us are dumber than some of us. <laughs> that's like, we have good ideas till we all get together. And then none of us knows anything uh, and talk and talk and talk about I thank the Lord in heaven for Barnabas type people who can come in and say, God's working here and this is great and I see faithful ministry. Let's go. Let's do more. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go get somebody and bring them back because there's so much good going on here. We can do more. And of course, that's going to be Paul. But Sometimes we need someone to believe that something can be done for us. You know, sometimes you, you kind of succumb to all that and you, you just get to where you don't know if things are going to fly. Barnabas comes along and, and this guy, Luke's being careful when he says, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then the last description of him, you know, his name means son of encouragement. You know what encourage means, right? It means to give you courage. Sometimes we forget that courage is part of encourage. Do you know what one thing courage has to have to make any sense? Fear. If you're not afraid of something, you don't need any courage, do you? I say to one of my sons, hey, jump off that. You know, two of those three sons will jump right off. There's, there's no fear. It's probably more like partial insanity. But another, I'm going to have to coach him. All right, it's not that far. Water's soft. It's a lot of fun. You'll want to do it again as soon as you finish. So I'll have to engage the fear with encouragement, Right? That's what this guy Barnabas is for. And that's why God gives those to the church. Because there's a lot to be afraid of. And sometimes a, 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 a faithful minister of the gospel needs the Barnabas to come along to provide the courage to confront the fear. And what I see in this passage is there's no one-man band kind of the problem with things that get so big and bloated and God meant for the church to be a body 
And God gave them different gifts that offset other weaknesses. And when you say, I don't need these gifts, I just need this idea, you have a problem. But when you got all these gifts around and his life throws the fear factor into the stratosphere, God has a fix for that. And they're named Barnabas. So what did he do? Verse 25. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So he says, I think this is a good investment. And Jerusalem didn't tell him. He just said, I know exactly the guy I need. I know him. I've already met him. We've had dealings in the past. I'm going to go find him. So he goes to find Saul, Paul the apostle. And for a year, they give Antioch a theological starter kit, the likes of which to be the foundation for a viable ministry. When they get back to Antioch for a whole year, they employ the third method of witness. And this word in the Greek is didasko, translated taught, which is a prolonged and thorough learning process. I think it's brilliant. What do new Christians need after they've just been one to the Lord? A thorough understanding of God's Word. All right, you're, you're in the family. Now let me tell you what this is all about. And for a year, they teach. Luke also takes time to mention that this is the first time that disciples are called Christians. There's some debate as to why this name was chosen, although it's clear that it wasn't the name Christians chose for themselves. Um, the term was given to them, maybe, likely, out of contempt. And it makes sense that the people of Antioch named them by what they saw in them. Now, some would say Christians, uh, but actually, to get at the original languages, Christers, you know, kind of like an Englisher. A Christer, because that's all they talked about. They talked about this Christ. They they shared this Christ. Um, they lived about Jesus. They sang about Jesus. They spoke about Jesus. They gathered in pals to do all these things about Jesus. So they're going to call them little Christs. They're making fun of them, and uh, just like when uh, the fella in. Canada said that the hockey team down in Carolina acts like a bunch of jerks. I've been wearing that on T-shirts for four years now. I think they're proud to be called a bunch of jerks. Now, these people in Antioch, and I hope every one of us in this room called a Christian, doesn't care who calls us a Christian, as long as they get it right. That's who we stand for. That's who saved us. That's who we teach. That's who we share. That's who has the, 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 the run of our lives. And that's who we'll live eternity with when we're gone. So it was first place, Antioch's, where they got their name. Verse 27, now in these days, and this sounds a little weird, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Apparently, the, fa the famine was worse there. Did so, sending it by the elders. 
a lot of the attention usually gets caught up in the prophesying part and prophesying in the spirit and having information about a famine that hadn't taken place yet. Of course, we've, we've discussed this before. There are things that happen in Acts that don't happen later for the purpose of telling the people who are being evangelized that this Jesus is really who he said he was, complete with miracles, and telling the future as far as a famine that will take place. So we don't make a whole lot out of that. Much of that has rolled off. It's just as wrong to say God can't do that anymore and won't do that anymore and doesn't do that anymore. He can do whatever he wants to. And on the mission field, there are all kinds of crazy stories that people in churches wearing suits don't get or understand. But one situation is a little different than the other. Let's let God be God and we'll be good students. But the striking thing, I think, about this verse is not just the willingness on the part of the church to help those who would be impacted by it, but the fact that the movement of resources is just about as backward to the way we think it goes as it can possibly be. Where are the funds being raised and where are they being sent to? They're raising the funds on the mission field and sending it back to headquarters rather than headquarters raising funds for the mission field and sending it to the mission field. And say, well, what's so odd about that? Well, just because that's the way. I've never, I've never seen it done that way. I've never heard of it done that way. But this seems to be God's business. And he's taking care of whom he needs to take care of, maybe in this way, only to sit or have us sit and scratch our heads going, but I thought we figured out how missions worked best. No, the, the man who gave the Great Commission knows best how to do missions. And I think the way he starts is there are people speaking about Jesus. And then maybe they come across someone who's evangelizing the gospel of Jesus. And then eventually they wind up under a couple of guys or more that'll teach the tar out of Jesus for a year or more till they understand it. And then when it comes time that there's a need and they have resources, it wouldn't make any sense to them to do anything other than to give the people that need something what they need because they're our brothers. And this is all for Jesus, right? Amazing number of facts that come together to show us how the church works in this non-dramatic passage of Scripture, isn't it? So what can we say about all this? This is just a recap And then we'll sing and we'll go get some lunch. Each act of witness is the outcome of a previous witness so far in the book of Acts. Stephen's martyrdom was Antioch's opportunity. Because of Stephen's martyrdom, they ratchet up the persecution and spread these Christians to the four winds, it seems. They're landing in Antioch, and so is the gospel. These things are all tied together in God's providence. We learned a few weeks ago about Peter's vision that didn't make sense to him at the moment, but now it's become the very means of the church making sense of everything moving forward. That blanket, clean and unclean, common and uncommon, means to say that the gospel goes to everyone, Jew and Gentile, regardless of what language they speak. Or what about Saul's apprehension on the road to Damascus, who everyone immediately identified as Stephen's murderer, Well, now he's Antioch's teacher for a year. We got this special teacher. It's been years since that, and he's been learning all he can, and now it's time for him to do the teaching. 
or Antioch's spiritual blessing becoming Judea's help in time of famine. But all of these are tied together, and it might be tempting to look at it all as links in a chain, like one thing accounts for the next thing accounts for the next thing, kind of like wire grass. You, You don't want that stuff in your yard, right? I've been looking into bamboo to go along with the palms, but I've heard that bamboo is a swear word around here. It's, and not by you, but by your neighbors who get the bamboo in their yard and their neighbor's yard and because they send out these runners. And, and you would think that maybe this is, is all similar to that. Yes, one does the other, but we're going to see there are places where it seems to be popping up out of almost nowhere. But again, there is a witness to the gospel that's being sent. Same time, every act of witness is a new venture. So don't think of it as one big clump of that. But the runner sends out another clump, which sends out who knows how many other runners to do the very same thing. None of the men of Cyprus or Cyrene were preaching to the Greeks. The Jerusalem church uh, told Barnabas to look in on Antioch, but they didn't say anything to him about finding Saul or going back for a year. That was his choice. Uh, What I meant to say was no one told the men of Cyprus or Cyrene to preach to the Greeks. The rest of the crowd was preaching only to Jews. And then the collection for Judea for famine relief was about as spontaneous as, as an act can be. It wasn't like Jerusalem said, hey, you send us some money. We sent you some. We need some back. That didn't happen. And then if you account for all the variety of gifts that we see elsewhere in Scripture accounted for just in what we read this morning, you could almost check off the entire list of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. They're all seen. You got the apostles in Jerusalem sending Barnabas. But then you got Barnabas going to get a teacher who seems to be acting in the form of a shepherd. You've got evangelists, and you've got the prophet telling them about the famine. That's the other thing to remember. If God's hand is indeed on a ministry, God will outfit that ministry for the work he has determined. Say, where in the world am I going to go find a Barnabas? God will send him to you. Where in the world am I going to find a Paul? Maybe he'll send a Barnabas to go fetch him. But one way or the other, if God's hands on a ministry and the ministry itself is faithful, God will equip the ministry through the gifts that he gives them. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. For what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For what? For building up the body of Christ. So back to where we started. Speaking, preaching, teaching. No one man can win a soul. How many prayers, how many long hours of patient teaching, how many other ministries, how many funerals? My father helped me with this. He said, don't look at a funeral as just a way to maintain a church body. Look as a funeral as an opportunity to preach the gospel to people that don't come to church every week, but who love the people that you're there to faithfully honor and bury. Just keep telling them the truth. Your entry point might be something 
like a funeral. Don't ever waste a funeral, Dad would say. And at Pleasant Grove in my 20s, that turned out to be in that small little town where everyone knew each other, but few of them went to each other's churches, the greatest outreach the church had. So the Lord will do his work if we're faithful to his word and we're faithful to each other. Who knows how many prayers, hours of teaching, other ministries are needed to bring about an understanding of grace and those for which Christ died. I'm glad that's his business. We'll just be faithful to where he's put us and where he's planted us. But with that said, let's ask the Lord to help us obey what he has helped us understand. Father in heaven, we thank you for Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. We thank you for a man named Barnabas, for unnamed men who were preaching, teaching, for a host of unnamed families, moms and dads, maybe sons and daughters who were talking about this Jesus that ran them away from their homes. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us, a faithful ministry, loving church members, brothers and sisters who take care of one another. Lord, would you see fit to use us? Lord, would you find in this place by our heart, our attitude, our faithfulness, a place where you would place your hand for your glory and not our own. Lord, thank you so much for our time together this morning in your word. May it root deeply in our our hearts and our minds. And Lord, may you see fit to honor its fruit. And Lord, help us to give it away. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.